we'll open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17 today. And, and I wanted to start with a quote, and I actually thought this was a quote from Yogi Berra, right? He's just, uh, it was a baseball manager, Dodgers, I believe. Oh. Yankees. Yankees. He was a manager for the Yankees. In my intense and infinite knowledge of all things baseball, I knew that. <clears throat> well, anyway, it really doesn't matter because it's not his quote. I was wrong, so I got it all wrong. There's a theme today. Um, but, but the quote is, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Have you heard that? It's not Yogi Berra, evidently. I'm kind of disappointed by that. It sounds like his sort of thing. I guess uh, this guy Stephen Covey, who's like a, a writer in the business world and one of these business leadership gurus, he said it, that, which I just think is far less exciting. But still, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So let me ask you this. Who decides what's the main thing? I mean, if that's so important to keep the main thing, the main thing, somebody's got to decide this is the main thing. How do we keep our focus on that which is most important? And then the next question is, does it change? Does the main thing change depending on the situation? Should our priority and our response to that priority change depending on what's going on in our life? I've called this sermon series on First Peter Scattered. Because he addresses, at the very beginning of the book, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And we looked at the fact that these Christians are actually scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Some would have been removed from their homes and, and taken to other places. But I think what Peter is really pointing out is they are living in a culture that no longer supports what they believe and is gently, maybe not gently, gradually turning against them. And so they are living as exiles, some of them in their own homes, in their own neighborhoods, in their own countries. They are experiencing exile because the culture around them no longer believes or supports what they believe. Now, the Roman Empire at first, when Christianity came on the scene, was kind of like, hmm, it's sort of new, but it's okay, it's no big deal, it's just sort of this offshoot of this other religion. As time went on, the attitude of the Romans toward Christianity changed. And they went from sort of accepting it to questioning it to condemning it to persecuting it. And Peter is writing in that, that turn where it's, it's going from questioning and the beginnings of persecution are coming. And so he's writing to these people saying, what do you do in a culture that no longer supports what you believe? And I think that is a very fair and valid and important question for us as Christians today. Because I think too often what we do is we say, well, we complain about it. <laughs> that's, that's how we're going to solve our problems. We're just going to complain. Oh, if we could just go back to the way it used to be, if we could just make things turn the way that it was good back then, if we could make things go the way we want it to be. And you're not going to see that in First Peter. In fact, he's specifically going to say, don't do that. So what do we do? Do we rise up and fight? Do we argue with everybody around us? He says, no, don't do that either. So what do we do? And in this passage, he's going to talk about what we need to do is keep the main thing the main thing. Now, last week, we looked at verses 8 through 12. And one of the things he said in verse 9 was, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. 
And we talked about how our response to things in our culture, our life, uh, people in our life, they are not conditioned on what's going on. They're not even conditioned on the rightness or the wrongness of that person. We cannot return evil for evil. We can't get sucked into the argument and enter into it with bitterness and name calling. We can't fight the world's problems using the world's methods. We can't do that. Now, I applied this to the political atmosphere in our culture today and just talked about how important it was as Christians to not enter in that way that we are called to be different. Whenever I do that, I get emails and phone calls and That happened again, and that's fine. I'm glad people are listening. That's good. Evidently, some people took that to mean that I was saying we should never enter into those discussions. That's not, I don't think it's what I said. It's certainly not what I meant. What I meant was, as we enter into those discussions, our highest priority is not to win the argument. It is to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we cannot use the world's means to do that. We cannot resort to name-calling and insults and think that we are upholding our Savior who came and dwelt among us and went to the cross and died in our place for our sins. Those are mutually incompatible. So yes, engage, but engage with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a question lingers. Does the way that we we respond in situations point to our hope in Jesus Christ? Or does it point to the fact that we think we know best? Does our response point to hope in Christ? That's what we need to ask ourselves in every situation. Now, it's easy to say, well, that should happen in the best of situations. In really good situations, yes, a good Christian should point to help in Jesus Christ. So let's dig in. What do we do in a fear-filled environment? What do we do when things aren't going well? Because that's what Peter is addressing. I think too many people dismiss Christianity and say, oh, that's just pie in the sky, hope and dreams, and you know, when everything is perfect and those Christians have perfect lives. Man, pick up the Bible and read it because these are, this is not written to people going through a perfect life and everything is going swimmingly well. It is written to people going through hardship and difficulty and struggles. And I think we can all relate to that. So what do we do in a fear-filled environment? Look at 1 Peter three thirteen through 14. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats Do not be frightened. Now, Peter starts with a general truth. This happens often in Scripture. There are general truths. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now, he said in verse 9 that they're not to repay evil for evil, but with a blessing. So he's already recognized that, yes, while in general, if you do good things, good things might happen to you. That is a good general principle but it doesn't hold true in every situation. And people that twist and distort the word of God to just say, if you just live a good life, then God will bless you and things will be good. That's taking that out of context because the context is live a good life. And in general, that might lead to good things, but let's talk about what happens when it doesn't, when suffering comes. Right living may still and often will lead to struggle and even persecution. 
And so Peter is giving us instructions on how to handle that. That's really what 1 Peter is all about. The entirety of the letter is Peter writing to struggling Christians saying, here's how to endure and live out your faith in that difficulty. So he says, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Why does he have to say this? Why does he have to remind them that they are blessed even if things are not going well? I think it's because we all have a tendency when situations turn against us to doubt the goodness of God. And in that moment, we say, God, why? Why are you allowing me to go through this? Why aren't you good? Why aren't you gracious? Why aren't you merciful? And we forget the great blessings that are already ours in Jesus Christ. Our status of being blessed by God is always based on the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And no situation in our life can take that away from us. And we need to remind ourselves, I have the most incredible blessing even in this situation. And I can hold on to that as an anchor for my hope, as Hebrews talks about. And then at the end of verse 14, he says, Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Literally, the Greek says, do not fear their fear. And so your translation might render it slightly different because there's kind of two ways to, to take this. It might mean don't fear what they're doing to you, like their threats. Don't fear what they're threatening. Their fear that they're trying to make you afraid of them. Don't fear that. It can also mean don't fear what they fear. Well, our world looks at various things and says, I'm nervous about that, I'm anxious, I'm afraid. And, and Peter is saying, don't fear that. Both are true. And I think both are included in what he's saying there. Why does it matter what we fear? Because according to Scripture, what we fear displays our highest priorities. What you fear displays your highest priority. I've told this story before, but I think it illustrates this. When I was in grade school, probably first or second grade, I remember being on the playground and two things happened at the same time. A bee landed on my hand and the teacher called us in for recess. Exactly the same moment. In that moment, I had conflicting authorities. I was obligated to my teacher to obey her. I needed to leave the, the equipment I was on and go inside. Being a good child, I knew this, and I wanted to do that. I had another obligation, another authority. This horrendous creature was on my hand. And in my childlike mind, its sting would mean instant death. I'm not even allergic, but that was like the idea of the worst thing that could happen. And, and we're taught right from birth, what do you do if a bee lands on you? Don't. Move. So the authority of the bee was crying out to me, don't move or I'm going to sting you. Now, on the one hand, I'm afraid of being stung. On the other hand, I'm afraid of getting in trouble by not obeying my teacher. So what do you think I did? I stayed still. <laughs> because I was more afraid of the bee than I was of the teacher. And that fear demonstrated the highest priority in that moment. What I feared revealed my priorities. My personal safety and comfort was a, of a greater priority than my obedience to my teacher. 
Now, that's a silly illustration, and really, who cares? It's just a bee. Scripture says often the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we always want to explain that away. Oh, he's just talking about reverence. He's just talking about awe. He doesn't really mean fear. No, actually, the Hebrew language there literally means fear. Do we believe that the Lord God Almighty is our highest priority, is sovereign over all things, holds our very life in his hands, and we recognize he is greater than anything else we might be tempted to fear? Because the Bible says that idea, he is greater than all else, is the beginning of wisdom. Peter is writing to Christians who were living in a situation that was full of Fear. If you're a Christian here today, how are you feeling about your life in our culture? Do you think it's appropriate to say there's a lot of fear right now in the world? Even outside the realm of Christianity, outside of the struggle between culture and faith, is there a lot of fear in the world? We live in a fear-filled environment, just as they did. I think... Too many people think that Christianity and faith, belief in Jesus, doesn't really deal with reality. Like somehow it, it's just this thing we come on Sundays and, and we study or we read or we sing and we, we pray and it's a good experience, but it really doesn't impact our day-to-day lives. And Peter says to these people living in a fear-filled environment, don't give in to that fear. So how do we live in a fear-filled environment. Already he's told us, hold on to the blessing. Understand our blessing in Jesus Christ. He then says, don't fear what they fear. We are not to give in to that fear. We are not to allow it to soak into who we are and to be part of our expression of our faith, to just go around and being afraid all the time. And now Peter is going to tell us the main thing. Look at verse 15. He says, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, verse 15, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. Let's just stop there. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. That word for revere there is actually a very common word to us. You might know it from what's called the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's the same word. Hallowed, be made holy, revered, worshipped, held up as important. That's what he's talking about there. So he says, in your hearts, revere, set apart, consider holy, keep as the most important thing, Jesus Christ, don't allow anything to take that place in your life. In fact, when he says Christ as Lord, he's actually using the same Greek word that's used to translate the very name of God from the Old Testament, Yahweh. So he's saying, revere Christ not just as something important, but as the most important thing. Jesus Christ is Lord. Set him apart at the highest place of greatest authority in your life. When you are going through times that you are afraid, stop and say, is Christ first? 
Is he greater than what I'm going through? Is he more powerful? Am I focusing there? Am I keeping my eyes on the fact and the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord God most high and he is still on his throne? Set apart, revere Christ as Lord. Now notice the link between 14 and 15. He says, do not fear their threats. Do not fear what they fear but, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. So he's setting up these two things. He says, you can either fear the things of the world and what they fear and what they're causing you to fear, or you can revere Christ as Lord. These two things are mutually exclusive. If we fear the things of this world, and allow those things to dictate our thoughts and our actions and our emotions, and we are constantly wringing our hands at the world, saying, oh, it's all falling apart. We all have to do things. We just got to fix things. It's all falling apart. We're not revering Christ as Lord. And if we revere Christ as Lord, we can look at the world and say, there are struggles, yes. There are things that we can enter into and engage in, yes. But God is still on his throne. I will revere Christ as Lord. And then he says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have. Hope in 1 Peter is not some vague hope that the weather will change in Rochester, right? Based on nothing more than just that's what I want to happen. That's not what he's talking about. Hope is based on the certainty of God's promise and the certainty of our salvation accomplished in Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4, through 4, he starts the letter saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. This is your identity in Christ. You have a new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil. Or fate. And then going on in chapter 1, verse 21, through him, Jesus, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Hope is fundamental to being a Christian, it is foundational to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the hope that what we see in this world, what we experience in the world, is not the end of the story. God has sent his son. He has come to save his people. That we might have new life in him and we have the certain hope that Jesus Christ is coming back to set things right. That's the hope that he's talking about. So then he says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. And as I read that, I thought that's really interesting because it implies something. It implies that the people watching these Christians that Peter is, is speaking to, these Christians that are struggling and being persecuted, that these people watching them are seeing their hope in their life, in their words, in their social interactions. They must be seeing their hope. And there is something saying, why? Why do you have that hope? I wonder. As people look at our lives, as people look at the church today, the gathering of Christians, as people look at our social interactions, as people 
look at how we treat one another and treat the world and respond in difficult, even evil circumstances, would they say, I see hope in you and I want to know more about it? Sometimes what Peter's talking about here is in a more negative situation. It's the idea that the people watching the Christians are even putting them on trial. What you believe is wrong. And I demand justification. Why do you have this hope? And it's the same thing. And the same response is, be ready to give an answer. Could you? Could I? give an answer for the hope we have in Jesus Christ? Would my actions and my attitude even raise the question of what the hope is in my life? Those are tough questions. In all things, in all ways, we are to point to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the main thing. Not our personal safety, not our personal comfort, not being heard in this world or getting our argument across. Our highest priority is to point through our attitude and actions and words to Jesus Christ in all things. Pastor and theologian John Piper says this about our hope. says, He, Christ, is the ground of it and the goal of it. When our hope looks strong, Christ, the ground and goal of it, looks strong. So he is hallowed and honored when we show that our hope is unshakable. Now take that and turn it around for a moment. What does that mean when we look at the circumstances of our life and of the world and we allow it to shake our hope in Jesus Christ? It means we are displaying a weak gospel, an ineffective gospel. And the world that is so desperately looking for hope will not see it in us if that's our response. It's important to keep the main thing, the main thing. Set apart Christ as Lord. Be prepared to give an answer for the hope. But as we do that, we need to remember that the how and the what and the why are all still important. Let me explain what I mean by that. Look at verses 15 through 17. I'll read the end of 15 here. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter says here, as he has throughout this letter, how we engage is just as important as the truth we believe. The one is linked to the other. If we believe in a gospel of grace and mercy, then our words must be filled with grace and mercy. Our actions must demonstrate grace and mercy, never letting go of the truth, never compromising on it, but displaying it through our attitude and actions. It's not enough to be right. We must live a demonstration of the gospel. He says, with gentleness 
and respect. Now, does that mean, as Peter saying, well, the other person is right, so you should be gentle and respectful? Not at all. In fact, he's already called it evil. He's saying, you're, this is how you're responding to evil. And even then you should show gentleness and respect. Never calling the evil good, never redefining the good to include the evil, but still showing gentleness and respect in how we treat that person. It means, frankly, Christian, listen, you have a higher priority in every situation than winning an argument. And we have a higher priority in every situation than getting out of or avoiding suffering. The highest priority in our life is to display the gospel of Jesus Christ that says he came and he suffered and he died. And he rose again, promising eternal life. Peter goes on to say, do this keeping a clear conscience. A conscience in line with the gospel, not answering evil for evil. He's saying, weigh your motives, weigh your thoughts against the gospel, not against the situation, but against the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. Can we say with a clear conscience, I have kept Christ first in my attitude and actions? Well, that's a high standard, isn't it? Can we weigh everything we do against that standard? And why should we do this? So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. They're speaking maliciously against their faith. That's what they're going through. This isn't just misunderstanding. These are accusations based on the fact that they believe in Jesus Christ. And Peter has already told them, you cannot, must not repay evil for evil. That is not the path available to us to solve that situation. Instead, as he said in verse 15, revere Christ as Lord. I would love to think, and I wish that I could tell you that what Peter is saying here is that if you respond well, with grace, that person will stop and say, I'm so wrong. I've seen your good behavior, and I realize the wrongness of my way, and I am ashamed. It's not what he's saying. Maybe that will happen sometimes. But see, in that culture, shame and honor was a very public thing. It was other people overseeing an interaction and saying, I think this person's right. I honor the rightness of this person and I find that person to be shameful. And so they're looking at the situation and what Peter is saying is, keep demonstrating the gospel because people are watching. You are a defense. Your every action, your every motive, our every word is a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Throughout the history of the church, the humble response and faithful actions of Christians, especially in persecution, has convinced others time and time again of the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a high calling to display the hope of the gospel in everything that we do. 
And he says, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Throughout this letter, he says, look, suffering will come. In that moment, make sure you're suffering for the right things. Don't suffer for the poor attitude or your own pride or arrogance or mean spirit with which we interact with things. Make sure in that moment we are suffering for displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, we must not live in fear and dread. And and I want to make sure as we walk through this letter of 1 Peter that that's not the message you're hearing. Oh, woe is us. We're suffering and the world's out to get us. That's not the message. The message is that may come. But the message is what we are to do and how we are to live no matter what. We are to live the hope that displays the gospel. Our highest priority must be exalting Jesus Christ in our lives. Fear exalts the world. It makes too much of the world. Fear exalts ourselves. Well, if this would just happen, everything would be okay. We must instead exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have an unshakable foundation for our hope that nothing can steal from us. Let's live it. Let's demonstrate it. Let's speak it and share it and show it no matter what. There is a freedom that comes from that. It's a freedom to truly show love and respect to others, even those that we disagree, even as we are disagreeing with them. Because we know that the world and their life belongs to Jesus Christ. This is our highest priority. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy we have in the hope of the gospel. And I pray, Father, in those moments when we are struggling with doubt, whether it's because circumstances are difficult or because people are even turning against us for our faith, No matter what, may we remind ourselves to revere Jesus Christ as our Lord. May we remind ourselves of the unshakable hope we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we live in such a way that demonstrates that so that other people will ask, why do you have that hope? And we can point them to Jesus Christ, who alone can save them. In whose name we pray. Amen.